Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach, Nancy Norbeck. Let's go. Today's guest, Nick Morrison, is a guitarist, teacher, author, and composer whose work you've probably heard in productions from Warner Brothers, Universal Studios, Sony, MTV, ABC, NBC, HGTV, and HBO. Nick talks with me about how musicians can make money making music beyond performing and teaching and how writing music for TV and movie productions works. We also talk about why structure and limitations enhance our creativity, how the time he spent in Japan influenced his creative process, and more. I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Nick Morrison. Nick, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. Hello and welcome. I mean, welcome. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I start everybody off with the same question, which is, were you a creative kid or did you discover your creative side later on? I think I've always been creative, um, really thanks to my mom. She, she really instilled creativity in me from probably even before I was born, you know, back in the, I think it was the late eighties or the early nineties, they had those specially formed speakers mommies could put on their tummies Mm. and play like Mozart for their kids and stuff. So I was a seventies kid, but she would like, uh, she took apart a pair of headphones and would sit next to the hi-fi and play me music in, in the womb. And so I really, I think that probably had a big hand in me becoming a musician. And then of course, once I was born, she, she played with me. We always had, uh, imagination games and, you know, I would uh, play a bus driver or we would set up a, an ice cream shop or we would, um, go on an African lion safari in the backyard and I would be the tour guide, you know, these sorts of things. So I was, I was always pretty creative. Um, and then it was, as I, you know, as you grow up, you start to find kind of your niche and what you're better at than others. Like I'm a horrible artist. I can draw stick figures all day long, but I'm, you know, I'm, I, I can't do quote unquote real art, but music is my, is my thing. Yeah. So did, when you started to go in a more musical direction, did she encourage you? It sounds to me like she probably did. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. Um, I actually started guitar isn't even my first instrument. I actually started on violin and, uh, I wanted, I think I was four or maybe five. And so I started with something called the Suzuki method. Mm. Yeah. And I had a tiny, tiny, like quarter size violin and a little short bow. Um, and that is really a great system because it, it teaches you the fundamentals of music and how to read, but it's a lot of, uh, learning by rote where the, the instructor will play and then you copy and play back like a call and answer. And so I started that, but You know, it's funny because by the time I reached probably seven or eight, I hated practicing. Mm -hmm. And I just was like, mom, I don't want to do this anymore. And she never wanted to force me to do anything. And she said, okay, well, if you don't want to do it anymore, you don't want to do it anymore. And um, which is kind of a bummer because a part of that method as well is you always record your practice sessions. And I still have some of those tapes and I listen back and I'm like, I was actually pretty good. Not like, you know, pretty good for a kid. Like I was Mm -hmm. actually pretty good. And, uh, I'm not, you know, concert levels or anything like that, right. but you know, I was surprised it was not catch, uh, cats scratching chalkboards. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, again, not wanting to pressure me to do anything. It was fine that I wanted to quit. And then I, I took up, um, piano around age 10, I think it was. And I had maybe a year and a half of piano lessons. Um, and then, um, bagpipes, I started uh, around 11 or 12, around the same time that I picked up guitar, maybe a little bit before. And that was through, we have an organization here in, in Canada called the, the, the cadets, the cadet corps. So air cadets, I think you have something similar in the U S and, um, I joined the band and played bagpipes and that was amazing and lots of fun. And then I found guitar and then that was kind of it. I was just like, no, focusing on guitar solely. That's it. That's my thing. I found my, I found my ticket and I'm going to ride it until it's done. You know? Yeah. Though bagpipes is an interesting stop along the way. Yeah, totally. I mean, I still play. I don't, I'm not a practicing piper any longer, but uh, I still have them and I still, you know, haul them out every once in a while, make some noise, make all the neighbors call the cops. And <laughs> it's lots of fun. Yeah. Yeah. That is a great thing if your neighbors really annoy you, but yeah, <laughs> then they probably will call the cops. So you have to sure. choose, choose your battles with that one. Yeah. Yeah. So you landed on guitar. Yeah. And then you went to Berkeley. I did, yeah. The Berkeley School of Music, we should be very clear Yeah, Berkeley College of Music in Boston, <laughs> Massachusetts, um, not Berkeley, California. Right. 
Yeah. Right. But you also, you know, studied music business. Yep. Which I have a feeling probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, probably not a lot of your fellow classmates did both of those things. True. I had, um, I had one other fellow uh, in my, was he in my class? Maybe he was a year behind me. I don't remember. No, I think we were in the same class. And uh, he also studied. So it, uh, the program there is a uh, professional music and it's kind of almost like a, a dual major and you can kind of shape it and mix it to, to kind of do whatever you want. Um, so I focused on performance and music business management and he did the same thing. And, you know, I, I always looked at it like, okay, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to be a professional musician, if I'm going to make a living, I better figure out how to actually make money. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you all hear, everybody hears the horror stories. I'm not sure exactly where you're located, but here in Calgary and Alberta, you know, bars are paying, taking inflation out of it. They're paying less today than they were playing, paying in the eighties, the nineties and the two thousands. So wages go down, 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 down. And you can't, you can't make a living. You can't sustain yourself. You can't mm-hmm. have a family. Uh, if, if you're making less than minimum wage. So yeah, I really, I kind of saw that coming and I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta focus on how to make music. And most musicians will tell you, um, you know, they, they dabble in kind of the two most basic ways to make money, playing and teaching. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what most people think about, but there's so many more avenues and ways to make money with music other than just those two things. And those are great things. Don't, you know, don't get me wrong. I got a couple of friends that make great livings as, as music teachers. And I mean, I teach music myself, um, but there's, there's so many other avenues and um, it, it's good to be able to explore them and, and then share them with, you know, listeners across the interwebs. Well, let's do a little bit of that because I think that, you know, there are a lot of people who just assume that if you're going to be a musician, you are not going to make any money. You're going to have to have a day job that you hate. You're, you know, all of those kind of things. And I think that it's super important to disabuse that notion to whatever extent we possibly can and say, hey, no, there are more options than you might imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Right off the top of my head. I mean, obviously there are the performance avenues. And there are writing avenues. So I'm sure people are very familiar with Nashville. And most of the people that live in Nashville are not your Garth Brooks and your um, Trisha Yearwoods and so forth. Most of the people in Nashville that are professional musicians are studio players and writers. And studio players, if you're a session musician is the technical term, you can make really great money, especially if you're part of the, the, the musicians union. But it's day rate. It's contract jobs, and very rarely will you see any sort of residual or credit even for your work. And for a lot of guys, that's totally cool. Um, but if you're looking to make a more sustainable and long-term income, writing and um, creating and owning copyright is really the, the place to make your money. So if you can write music for other artists, that's huge. Now, the proportion of people that actually are successful doing that are quite small. I mean, in terms of the big big, big, big artist. Um, but then on the flip side of that, you have what I do or one of the things that I do, which is licensing music for film and television. And there's, again, of course, there's a couple different ways you can do that. You can write or score, right? Where you're doing soundtrack stuff with full orchestra and so forth. And that's, those are big gigs, right? You're, you're being paid potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to score an entire movie. Like I'm talking, you know, your John Williams and, and so forth. Um, then the other side is what's called interstitial music or incidental music, which is more what I do. And that's um, really like if you're thinking of a TV show, like a, like let's say two characters are driving along in a car and you hear some music in the background that sounds a bit like Joni Mitchell or Led Zeppelin or something like this. Most TV shows don't have the budget to actually license the music from those artists. So they'll put their feelers out or come to a, an artist like me or a, a studio and say, hey, can you create us 35 seconds of something that sounds like XYZ song? And that's what we do. And then, of course, because you've done that, you've written it, you own the copyright to it, you can license it to that production. And sometimes there's an upfront fee, sometimes there's not, but there's always royalties or residuals, they're called. And so every time that show or the movie or whatever it is that you've done, or commercials, commercial music is a great one too, and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, Every time that airs, you get a little check. And of course, it's collected through, in the U.S., you have um, BMI and ASCAP. And in Canada, we have SOCAN. And those are the, 
performance rights organizations that basically collect all of that money on your behalf and then and then pay you out because it's a it, it's a lot of paperwork <laughs> if you were trying to keep track of everything yourself most most folks even me and i'm pretty organized but even me i i would like lose money um and then of course commercial music and uh what i would call um uh, not executive excuse me but like stuff for businesses, right? Mm -hmm. So commercials as in like jingles and things, and you can write for your local radio station, TV station, um, these sorts of things, or, or marketing and advertising companies. And those are usually 360 degree buyout deals. So they come to you and say, hey, we need, you know, 35 seconds or a minute of this style of music. They'll give you some reference tracks and then you create it. And then you get a relatively, usually a large lump sum payout because they want to buy and own the rights for that music. Although sometimes there's splits as well where you can do a royalty share. Um, and then of course the other stuff, corporate, that's what I was trying to think of, corporate gigs, where you write stuff for private corporations for their internal training videos, for their um, IVR, which is the um, uh, on hold music for phones, um, <gasps> stuff like that. Yeah. You know, elevator music. It's, it's actually a, a very large segment of uh, income generating uh, income generating stream for musicians if you are lucky enough to meet the right people to do that kind of stuff um, and again there's there are associations and agencies that really specialize in that kind of stuff so you can you can seek them out or if you're again lucky enough through your networking to meet somebody and you can get some of those uh, deals as well so that's kind of um, how I make my money and then of course there's also now right yay 2023 or really since 2009 I think it was there's social media right we've got YouTube um, TikTok, I know in the U.S. is is, is pretty big, and, and uh, you know Facebook and all of those other places where if you're creating music, original content, and so forth, and you can monetize your watch time on those platforms, and you get a nice little check uh, every every one month or three months or however you know the payment thresholds are set up, and that's another great way that you can earn money with your music. So. Are you more aware of those things because you? did decide that you wanted to learn about music business management as well as majoring in guitar or have you kind of, huh. I don't know, how, how much of it has been luck and I, how much of it yeah, was foresight? For sure. I think so. Like you have to remember by the, when I went to school, there was really no internet. Mm -hmm. So everything that we learned was like pen and paper, business deals, shaking hands and, and kissing babies and networking and you know learning about opportunities that way so i'm really lucky because when you go to a school like berkeley you're surrounded with thousands of other aspiring musicians but also hundreds of incredibly talented incredibly caring and incredibly well-connected professors and adjunct professors and teachers and you know all of that mm -hmm. whole gamut but that networking opportunity, being in a place like that where there's such a concentration. It's like if you're an engineer, you want to go to MIT because that's Mecca for, <laughs> for engineers. Right. So it's the same kind of thing. You, you get that network and through that almost like osmosis, if you will, you start to learn about different opportunities and different things that come up. Um, but a lot of what ended up happening was in 2006. Sorry, it's been, it, I mean, it's, 20 odd years, right? Or almost 20 years at this point. I had a pretty bad car wreck and that took me out of the playing and touring capacity. So like I couldn't, I couldn't perform on stage anymore. Um, and I had to figure out another way to make money. So even though I studied music business and, and performance, I really wanted to be um, a, a touring guitar player. And I did that for, for a shorter time, right? A side man, they call it, or a backup musician mm -hmm. for, for, for artists. And that's another great uh, avenue for revenue as well. Again, very few people get to do it, but if you can, um, even at mid-level, you can make a decent living doing it. But uh, when that my touring career kind of came to an end, I was like, okay, well, what else am I going to do? And again, sort of reached out through my network and said, hey, you know, like what's, you know, phone calls and emails. What are you guys doing? Like, how are you making money? Whatever else. And I had a buddy who was already well-established in the film and television area. And he said, well, you you should start writing music for film and television. And he put me in, in contact with a, with a company um, that is uh, a, like a, a private or a third-party A&R company. So um, productions will approach them and say, hey, we need X, Y, Z, da, 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 da. And then they'll go through their artist roster or um, membership basically and say, who wants to 
push forward something like what do you got so then you submit it and they screen it out and and then pass along the five or ten best examples and then that that production will choose what they want and then you kind of get connected and then away you go and i was pretty lucky and successful right off the hop with that um within maybe three months i had like my first deal um and then another and then another and then another and oddly enough everything that i do now i would say maybe 80 80 percent of my income from royalty for for music for film and tv is because of a direct link to that very first deal i got so i built yeah i built a relationship with that with that production house and they knew me and they understood uh, what I could do and how fast I work and, you know, I'm, I'm easy to work with. And if they need changes, no problem. I'll get it done for you in 12 hours. We'll have it turned around, you know, off you go. Um, and then they kind of referred me to a few other friends as it were. Right. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's how, to, how it happens. And um, so this was, again, like I said, before really the dawn of the internet, it was just sort of becoming a thing. Um, but then, yeah, when, when YouTube went um, to be monetized in 2009, I was like, wow, this is, this is going to be huge. And I was actually part of the original, <laughs> I'm a YouTube OG. I've been on YouTube since like 2007, 2008. And um, I was part of that first wave of monetizations. And I was actually doing quite well. I had a channel that was actually not music, but it was, uh, it was it, 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 we did a thing for various reasons. I had to shut it down and, and then I restarted a new channel later. But I saw the potential. I was like, this is going to be huge. This is going to be the new way that artists connect with um, fans that artists connect with companies that artists connect with anybody that's interested in doing anything with their music. Um, and then of course I didn't even, well, I kind of did, but I couldn't predict the amounts that brand deals. And there's another way, if you have a huge social media following brands will come to you and say, Hey, can you review or feature our product or give us, give us music to, to make a, you know, these sorts of things. Um, and those deals can be huge. So I was like, just looking at like sort of the streaming revenue and or the ad share and hadn't even really thought about the, the, the brand deal stuff. I call it like the, the NASCAR model. Cause if you look at NASCAR, the biggest, um, way that they earn money is through sponsorships and excuse me, sponsorships and brand deals and featuring logos on the cars and patches on mm-hmm. the suits. And I was like, this is brilliant. If I could do that same kind of thing, I could probably bring in some extra dough (laughs) and it works, you know, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. That that's a whole world that, you know, most people don't think of, especially, you know, when it's their 17 year old saying, but mom, I want to be a musician. Yeah. And they think you're going to starve for the rest of your life. Yeah. And I mean the, so the reality is most of them are, And that's a horrible thing to say. I don't mean it to to dissuade anyone. But the problem is, is that most people, in my experience, I should say, most people that I've met are of the mindset of, I'm going to be an artist, I'm going to write and play songs, and that's how I'm going to make a living. And the truth is, in 2023, nobody is interested in new music. Nobody is interested in you as an artist. There are, of course, exceptions, and you can work really, really, really hard, and you can build a fan base. It can work. It's easier now than it's ever been. But by and large, most people aren't going to be able to, to, to get there doing just that one avenue. You do have to really branch out and you have to look at other ways to monetize. And then, of course, you can get into merchandising, T-shirts, your, your hats, um, writing books, which I also do. Um, you know, all of these sorts of things to help prop up your, your business. If you think of it like as, you know, Nick Morrison enterprises, I have a publishing wing, I have a songwriting wing, I have a licensing wing, I have a merchandising wing, I have a live music, um, production wing and so on and so on and so on. Yeah. So since you mentioned it in terms of, I am going to be an artist. Yeah. Do you, I, I, I have a feeling I already know the answer to this question. Sure. Again, maybe I'm wrong. Do you feel like you are less of an artist than you thought you were going to be when you were that age? That's an interesting question. Um, it's kind of a loaded question too. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but this gets back to what I was talking about with a lot of younger people thinking like, I'm going to be an artist, I'm going to be a songwriter, and I'm going to be famous, quote unquote. Um, the thing is, is that 
I think sometimes people get trapped in the mindset of I have to be creative and I have to do my own thing and I have to stretch my creative um, energies or my creative voice. And if I'm not doing exactly 100% of like what makes me really passionate and excited, then I'm a failure or I'm a sellout, you know, these sorts of things. And I look at it, I'm like, well, but isn't that the point? If you want to make a living being a musician, you have to quote unquote sell out. I'm not talking about the punk rock version of sell out. I mean, you have to sell your music. And there is, there is a reticence. I've had lots of different students that I've coached and worked with over the years and different people sometimes will come to me and like, Hey, I want to, you know, a music business mentor or a coach or whatever. And they're just very hard headed. Like, Nope, I'm never going to do that. I can't do it. And I'm like, okay, so is, is it, you can't, or you won't, or you don't want to. And that's fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But like, I like to eat. I like to have a roof over my head. I like to drive a reasonably new functioning, non-falling apart car. <clears throat> so I'm willing to do what it takes to, to have those things. The fun thing that I found out kind of later is that it's not selling out at all. And it's not a burden or a lack of creativity or a, a crushing or a suppression of creativity. It's actually more creative in trying to figure out how to express your voice through the very specific tight confines of an, uh, a commercial or corporate or let's call it a customer, customer's needs. And honestly, that's one of the best. Here's a, a, an awesome tip for anybody that's in your audience that is a songwriter. Give yourself limitations. Say, I'm only going to write a song using these three chords and this one scale and I'm not going to change it. And then you can, I mean, you can go as crazy with this as you want, of course, but when you, when you've put those limitations on yourself, right. Um, that, that saying is the, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, mm -hmm. right? You have limitations. Suddenly your creativity explodes because you're trying to find all these interesting and creative solutions to the problem of limitation. Whereas sometimes if you just sit down and you're like, cool, I have the entire range of guitar. I have every or the entire range of, of notes. I have all of the melodies and, and scales and everything that I want to use. And you're like, uh, six hours goes by and you don't do anything. Yeah, because you're overwhelmed. overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not something that you find out really right away unless you get into it or unless you have a very, um, a very good mentor that can actually articulate that to you. Um, but it's almost a sales problem where you, you can't explain it to somebody and say, this is good. Like eat your vegetables, right? Like mom and dad always say, eat your broccoli cause it's good for you. Yeah. Well, I don't like it. Right. But if you sell it in a way of like, look, this is going to help you. And this is the reason that you want to do it because X, Y, Z, right. If you start with your why, and then you can kind of backwards engineer and go, okay, here's the key. This is what I need to do. But yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a fun journey. Um, to be able to, to get to that point and go, actually, this is, I have more fun now writing small little um, pieces of music that are very tightly confined than I, than I do even, you know, just letting my creativity completely loose and creating, you know, the biggest, most epic thing possible. I, I had a feeling when I asked the question that you were probably going to say something like that, because I mm. think, you know, so many times creative people get hung up on the idea that being creative means being pure, whatever that means. Sure, yeah. And and not being limited and not being structured when actually being limited and being structured can be the best things for you. And totally. also, you know, letting go of that idea that there's only one way to be creative. Mm. Clearly, there are so many ways to be creative. And, yeah, and you absolutely. know, sticking yourself in that little hole you're actually limiting yourself, but not in the ways that are helpful when you say, yeah. no, I'm just going to, I'm going to just be this perfect artist. Well, there is no such thing as a yeah. perfect artist. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think that, that your example is, is fantastic. Yeah. And I mean, realistically, it spills into even like, let's go down the performance route of I'm, you know, an not I'm, but like I'm talking about mm -hmm. third person being like an original artist and, and whatever. And uh, the younger musicians that are maybe listening or anybody that's kind of just starting out and thinking about getting um, into promoting themselves. The, the most, and you've probably heard this too, because I know you coach creatives. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to limit myself to a box and I'm kind of, well, I'm, I'm a rock country blues 
Chicago uh, violin, organ, cello, guitar playing kind of interesting, fun, jazzy swing, power slop kind of musician. What the heck is that? <laughs> right? If yeah. you try to be everything for everyone, effectively, you are nothing for nobody. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you can actually put yourself, like in terms of a label and when you're marketing yourself, if you can put a label on it that is easily digestible and understandable to the person you're talking with, you're actually going to have more opportunity because people will understand what it is that you do. It, they will understand how to label you and move you through the system and, and either promote or share or talk about uh, what it is that you do, your sound, your music, whatever it happens to be. That's not to say that you can't have the bagpipe violin dual solo <laughs> in the middle of your eight-minute epic prog rock song, but you still kind of define yourself as, you know, whatever that thing is. And it, it's just human nature. We like to put things in boxes so that we can understand our world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also, you know, it's for you to understand how you fit into other Totally. Groups. You know, yeah. it's, and, and it, it is that hard thing of like, it doesn't mean that you still can't explore all these other things. Mm -hmm. It's just that in order to help other people understand how you can help yep. them, this is where you are. I, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So when you do a piece of music for TV or a film or whatever, mm -hmm. what, what does that process look like? Interesting. Um, I think it really depends on the end goal. So I'm lucky enough that I've been doing this for a while now. So sometimes, and I still get these and I love them. They're the easiest. It's the fastest and away you go. Um, where you get a specific um, cue that the production is looking for. Like I mentioned earlier, like, hey, we want to sound like 35 seconds of, you know, when the levee breaks by Led Zeppelin. Okay, cool. I know exactly how to recreate that. I know exactly what tone and style and thing that they're looking for. And that's easy. Again, you've got those confines and you just, you go to town. I also will write music um, in longer blocks of like 90 to 120 seconds, right? So a minute and a half to two minutes in whatever style I'm working on. Like, let's say I, I, I'm, do, I'm doing a rockabilly album right now. So it'll have 10 tracks and it's all in, instrumental, but it is, it, it's very, um, again, it's constrained to that style. But it's more just like, what do I feel like creating? So there's two types, right? You either get the cue that you're, you're, you're pitching or uh, creating specifically for, or you're creating kind of like a bulk of content that you're going to put out. And then I've, I've got agents that sort of shop it for me. Um, and those are a little bit more fun where you can kind of go, okay, well, cool. I'm stuck to this style. These are the 10 tracks that I'm going to do. Um, and then it's a matter of, of just sitting down and, and putting, putting notes to notes to hard drive right i was gonna say <laughs> tape but we don't do that anymore um but just putting notes to tape and and really i think for me one of the things that i love to do especially when i'm starting out like so like if i'm starting completely from scratch and i have nothing um written yet i don't have a lyric i don't have a melody i don't have anything i just literally hit record and i just do a brain dump and i'm just like here's everything that i can think of for the next 30 minutes or whatever like you put a time constraint on it like don't just do it for 12 hours, but like, I'm going to sit for 30 minutes and I'm just going to let my fingers play and whatever comes out, comes out. And what you're going to find is that let's say for 30 minutes, you're probably only going to get, if you're lucky, six minutes of gold. Mm -hmm. It's usually more like two minutes, <laughs> right? But you're going to go back and listen to it and go, wow, that was really great. That was really great. That was really great. And those are your seeds. Everything else you can save for later or throw away. It doesn't matter. But then you take those seeds and you start developing them. Maybe it's a riff. Maybe it's a chord progression. Maybe it's a little melody or even just a lick. And then you can start building the, the song around that thing. Um, it's kind of different every time that I do it, but it's always dependent on the style that I'm creating, right? So like if it's, if it's like rock or rockabilly or um, like 70s rock, stuff like that, it's usually a little bit more lick or riff based. If I'm creating like a folky, acoustic-y kind of thing, that's going to be a bit more uh, chord or strumming based. Um, and then if there's, let's say, um, something more modern, like a, like a mashup kind of like a, a, electronic based type stuff, it might be a, a beat 
that the song is built around, right? Or a specific sound effect sometimes, right? Like there's so many cool um, virtual libraries now that you can kind of go in and just start like playing around and go, oh, that's really cool. And then you can build a whole song around that. And then stylistically, because of there are, you know, again, this is the confines of create confines to creativity, but there are specific things for each style that kind of have to happen in a piece of music. And then it's like, oh, okay, cool. Well, I'm creating this, this type of song. I've got this riff. Now I need two more to match and complement. And I need a bass part and I need a this. And then I need a B section and a quick chorus, quote unquote. And then boom, you've got your, you've got your song. Wow. So do, do customers, when they come back with changes, are they like super specific usually? Or are they just like more general? Sometimes, yes. Um, I remember there was um, a customer a, a while ago. Um, I was working on a piece and I, and I sent it over to him. And he had very specific notes uh, when he came back. Most of it was like, he was like, this is great. Intro, can we, I'm, I'm trying to remember this, but it doesn't matter. But um, instead of a diminished seven, he was like, I'd, I'd prefer if you just use the minor seven here. Oh, okay, cool. Right? Wow. Um, and then melody wise, he was like, can you make the melody instead of going down, go up? Try F sharp or whatever it was. I can't remember mm -hmm. specifically, but, and so like he had those two very specific changes and very specific things that he wanted to hear. So I did that and I was like, Hey, that actually a sounds cooler and B it was exactly what he wanted. So yay. Other times I've had clients where <laughs> this one specifically, I gave, I gave them the, the track that I'd worked on and they came back, their notes were, this is cool, but can you make it sound more purple? <laughs> What did you what do the with heck that? Does that <laughs> well, I mean, there were a couple more probing questions, right? I'm like, okay, well, so when you say purple, do you mean the color? Do you mean um, a mood? Do you mean regal? Because purple could be kind of thing, right. like a king's robe or something. Um, and they're like, no, 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 like purple, you know, like, um, you know, like, uh, like, like, like purple haze, Jimi Hendrix. Ah, okay. I was kind of in that wheelhouse anyway, but basically they meant like they wanted louder more more excited and more fuzz on the guitar really is what they want so really they were they just and this is part of being a this is part of the creative process and i think one of the the most fun problem solving portions of it because customers know what they want in their head mm -hmm. they can hear what they're thinking about nine times out of ten or maybe 9.9 .9 times out of ten <laughs> unless you're talking specifically with music supervisors most of the time corporate uh, entities don't really know how to express what they want Right. So part of my job, a huge part of my job is asking good questions and trying to get to the heart of what is it that you're really after? And if you can do that and then provide what, they, what they're really after, you're going to A, get more work and you're, you're going to have a satisfied customer and then you're going to get more work. Has it ever, have you ever had trouble really figuring out exactly what they want? Uh, yeah, not for a while now, thankfully. Like I learned pretty quick. Um, there was a customer along time ago this is probably i'm gonna say 2010 but it might even be before that but 2010 seems to sort of stick out of my mind so they wanted um a classical piano piece now i don't really play piano i i i can comp and i you know i had to i had to learn like sort of rudimentary piano for ear training when i was in school so i mean i have a keyboard and i do programming and stuff so i'll play stuff and then i'll quantize and i'll, I'll cheat but at the end of the day you, you couldn't tell the difference. It sounds like someone playing piano. Great. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So anyway, they wanted classical piano and I was like, oh, okay, cool. And it was, I don't know, two minutes and da da da. And, uh, the only notes were like, uh, bright and cheerful. Okay, cool. Great. I got it. So I wrote a classical style piece in the classical style, which if you're into music uh, at all, you know, is the period of time right before the romantic era. So mm -hmm. we're, we're talking like 16 to 1700s, very specific to sort of like German, Germany, Austria, Western or Eastern Europe, that kind of style. We're thinking like Mozart, Handel, Grieg, no, not Grieg, excuse me. Um, anyway, that kind of stylistic. And uh, he came back and he's like, wow, thanks for that. But uh, I, I don't know, that's too, too hoity-toity. I'm not really interested in that. Thanks. Thanks so much for your work. We're, we're going to go with somebody else. And so I lost that contract. The other thing that I learned from that, what he, so two things, what he really wanted was relaxing piano sounds. Uh-huh. 
when he said classical, what he meant was no lyrics. So <laughs> instrumental piano is really what he wanted. Right. And he wanted it to be sort of energetic and light, but like smooth piano basically is what he wanted. And I was like, yeah. So the other thing that I learned, especially when doing custom creations is always get a deposit. <laughs> because I mean, I spent 25 or 30 hours or something. And again, this is, oh, you know, yeah. when I was first starting out, so everything took much longer, but I spent all that time, like a week preparing and writing and researching and making sure I was getting like the rules of classical music correct in my composition and all that kind of good stuff. And uh, yeah, I didn't get paid for any of it. Ooh. Right. So yeah, always get a deposit, you know, typical, I do 50%. I'm like 50% up front, the remaining 50% when it's done mm -hmm. and completed. And then once I get that, then you release masters. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so thankfully I haven't made that mistake uh, ever again. And uh, again, it's part of that process of finding out what it is exactly that the customer needs and wants. When somebody asks you for something in the vein of a specific song, how, mm -hmm. how tricky is it to fulfill that request without landing, you know, it with a lawsuit for coming too close? Oh, fair. Um, it's actually not. Uh, it's it's not difficult at all. Um, if you are sort of just starting out, it's really easy to, or if you're not careful, I guess you should I should say, um, on the surface level, and you just sort of recreate the track, but you like change keys, you know, or you you change the riff a little bit. Well, you're basically just ripping off that artist, right? But if you if you take apart, and again, this goes back to asking better questions, asking more questions, getting clarity. Like, what is it about that song that you like? Do you like the drums? Do you like the mood? Do you like the singing? Um, do you like it just because it's the classic song? And I mean, sometimes, you know, it might be that like that song is the song that they need. And ultimately, I've, I've had a handful of times where ultimately I've had to say like, look, I don't think you want me to do this. I think you actually are just going to have to cough up the dough and license the track because it sounds to me that's what you really want to use. Um, but getting back to like, let's say it's the drums. So we really like the way the drums sound. Okay, cool. Then you can research and figure out what kind of drum sounds like mics were used, what kind of room, um, what even just the kit. And then of course, you know, every, um, I go back to Led Zeppelin cause John Bonham has like such a signature drum sound, but like he had a really big boomy bass and a real kind of swing to the way he hit. And he was a very powerful drummer. Okay, cool. So you take those components into your, uh, session. And you're like, big boomy bass, lots of room reverb, hard hits, and a swing. Cool. Now I've captured the essence of that track. And then you layer on guitars as appropriately and keyboards and whatever else. So there's usually sort of one or two keys. Uh, and when I say keys, I mean like um, important points for any one song that will really give the sense of what that track is. Um, and it also... So it depends on how close they want it because you know at the end of the day you can't copyright chord progressions you can only copyright melody and words so we're not using words and usually because we're doing music that exists underneath dialogue there's not really a lot of melody either you know there'll be a lick here and there but again it's mostly kind of what i call bed tracks or rhythm tracks so you can you can actually get pretty close to the line of like really recreating that thing. Um, but a few chord differences and uh, rhythmic differences make a huge um, difference. <laughs> wow, I'm articulate. Um, but you can, you can, you, rhythmic changes make a huge difference as well, right? Um, because if you're, again, looking into like lawsuit stuff, because you can't really, there could be a case made that the chord progression is very close or, you know, whatever it happens to be. But if you pull it apart and look at the rhythms, they're like, oh, well, no, that's two very completely different things. So. That's kind of how I look at it and do it. Wow. I'm, I'm wondering as I'm listening to you talk about this, how many times I've heard something and, you know, made the subconscious association with something else without noticing how different it actually was. And I'll bet that it's a whole lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. Tons and tons and tons of, of um, more. So because of, I think maybe 2012, 2003, I can't remember when like the first Marvel movie came out that did it, but they started featuring like ACDC, Led Zeppelin, uh, Black Sabbath, Beastie Boys. I'm thinking of like the Marvel Universe uh, Avengers of the Galaxy, 
whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not super into that genre, but it has, it changed the way music supervisors use music in movies. So a lot of these big budget movies now have huge music budgets because they know, oh, we got to feature XYZ song by this band. Um, so it's, it's more for like independent films and um, TV, TV stuff and commercial spots where they're like, we just need to evoke the feeling. Again, getting back to the, uh, what you were talking about, because music is so, it, it's part, I, I think it really is the universal human language. You can play music to someone from the middle of nowhere, Africa, right? That has barely ever seen anything sort of modern. And then you could take the same piece of music to somebody that lives in like Columbia. And then you could take the same piece of music to somebody that lives in Dallas. And if it's a good piece of music, every one of them will have essentially the same reaction. They'll have a smile. Their eyes will light up. They'll kind of bob to the music and they will get the sense that it's happy or sad or whatever it happens to be. Um, So that is a key thing, especially in marketing and advertising, because those marketing and advertising companies want you to associate good feelings with their product or bad feelings with the um, negative thing that the product is going to solve, you know, these sorts Mm -hmm. of things. And then of course, there's also the nostalgia factor. Nostalgia is a very, very powerful, powerful marketing tool. So if you can get the, um, especially if you're marketing to the older set, right? So uh, elder, elder Gen X and boomers, if you're marketing something to them, if you can trigger that nostalgia gene or that nostalgia reaction, oh, like job done. And to your point, a lot of the, the music that you'll hear in some of these commercials is engineered specifically to do that, to, to reflect a, you know, a, a certain time and feeling, you know, from, from the target audience's prime. Yeah, though I have to say, as a, I think, mid-Gen Xer myself, a couple of years ago when they started using, you know, tunes from the 80s to sell like dryer sheets. Yes. I, I have to, I, yeah, and I have to wonder, <laughs> you know, like how, how did they really think that that was going to go over with Gen X in particular? Because I think yeah. Gen X is kind of famous for, you know, the rolling our eyes and going, yeah, whatever, yeah. you know, and, and. And for me, I remember, I think I was in the locker room at the gym the first time I I heard that ad and I just kind of turned around and stared at the TV as if, what in the name of all that's holy have you people done? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is totally, yeah, roll eyes and kind of silly and like, how does that work? But again, it is, it's just that subconscious thing. It will catch, it will catch and, and, and trigger the reaction that they're looking for amongst the vast majority of people. I mean, again, this is getting back to it's marketing 101, right? When you are targeting specifically for a, a, a target demographic, there's you're really looking to isolate or niche down to that specific group of people and everybody else doesn't matter. You know, you need to find, to use a parlance from our times, you need to find your tribe, mm-hmm. right? And and that's who you're marketing to. Um, but I, I, I will say I do enjoy now going to the, to the market or the grocery store mid afternoon on a Thursday and hearing my favorite songs playing on the radio or playing on the overhead <laughs> versus, you know, when I was a kid and like shopping with my mom and I'm like, wow, this is some moldy oldie, you know, <laughs> but that it was for her, not for me. And now of course the music is for me. And I'm like, ah, it's kind of cool. Yeah. But then you have that moment when you realize why it's kind of cool. And you're like, Oh right, yeah. Oh damn. I guess I'm I should the, apply to I'm AARP. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite there yet. Although apparently you do not have to be 65 plus to apply to an AARP card. No, you don't. You can, you can apply as a 20 something if you want, because it's just a membership service and you can, you can get all of the discounts that come along with it. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? Yeah. It's true. <laughs> Money saving tips from your uncle Nick. <laughs> so. I want to make sure that we have time to talk about the five years that you spent in Japan. Because sure. first of all, I'm fascinated that you got the chance to do it. And second, I'm always curious to know how spending time abroad affects people's creative process and creativity and mm. just, you know, how you see life in general. So how did you end up having the opportunity to to be in Japan in the first place? Yeah. So after the car accident, uh, I wasn't doing a whole lot. And my best friend from childhood um, was in Japan teaching English. And he said to me, he's like, well, you know, you got nothing else going on. Why don't you come to Japan, man? You know, teach some English. You got your degree. 
Um, that's really all you need. And I mean, yeah, you have to be good with people and, you know, uh, uh, outgoing and these sorts of things. He's like, you've got all that. Um, I'll give you a reference letter. We'll, you know, we'll get you sort of hooked up and um, come to Japan and have some fun, you know, teach some English. We'll do some traveling. Um, maybe you'll meet a nice girl who knows, you know? And I was like, well, I, why not? And that's, and that's how I went um, and had a lot of fun and spent quite a long time there. Uh, I did end up meeting a nice girl. I met my wife there. She's not Japanese. She's actually Canadian um, from a, a small town in Northern Alberta called Fort McMurray. And if anybody is knowledgeable at all about oil and gas, that's where our, our huge oil and gas sector is. It's, it's called the oil sands. Um, but of course I'm from Ontario, which is like way far East. It's closer to like New York. Right. So mm -hmm. um, actually Windsor, which is right across the border from, De uh, from Detroit, but I never would have met her had I not gone there. Right. So all of these things kind of happen for a reason, mm -hmm. which is, which is crazy, but it's, it's true. Um, but Japan and traveling and I, th I think it's really important for anybody in their twenties, I think everybody should take a gap year for sure. Get out, leave the U S leave Canada, leave. If you're from England, leave England, like wherever, right. Get out and experience more of the world because people see things differently to you. And if you can experience a little bit of that, even peripherally, it changes your way that you approach things in terms of your communication, your interactions with other humans, your patience, it will either increase it or dramatically decrease it. <laughs> Luckily enough, I think it increased it for me. Um, and, and it will give you a new appreciation for things that you have in your life that are missing from that expat life. And if even only for six months to a year, and it's funny to say that only six months to a year, but like in the grand scheme of things, six months to a year is like a blip. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, you know, even now I'm in my mid forties, I'm looking, I'm like five years. It was like nothing. It went by so fast, but it, 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 yeah, a, a great experience and learning to collaborate with, cause I also played guitar over there, of course, like, you know, and I, and I did end up um, playing and touring with a couple artists and doing some studio session work and stuff like that, which is, which was really, really nice. I never thought I'd ever do it again, but I was able to rehab and kind of get, get through all of that and, and get back on the horse as it were. Um, but the Japanese way of creating music is much more collaborative is maybe the wrong word, but it's the best way to express it. I think to North American audiences, really what they do is it's decision by committee. It's very strange for us to think about, but when you're, when you're in the studio and you're creating something and you, you, you've done a line uh, or, you know, you're playing or whatever happens, they shut off the recording. Everybody then gathers in the, in the um, uh, like the conference room or like the control room. And we, you talk about, what just happened? How did you like it? Was it good? Was it bad? Um, what do you think? Should we keep it? And literally it's like you're creating music like by votes. It's very strange. Like not literally, like they don't take a poll, but that's kind of how it is. And every little decision is done by this committee sort of approach because the Japanese is a Japan or the Japanese culture is a much more uh, sort of communal and community oriented culture versus um, North America where we're very much more individualistic. So it's a very different way of working, um, tested my patience a lot. And, uh, but ultimately again, it, it, it changed and informed the way I, I was able to be an artist and be creative moving forward. I'm much more open now to, Hey, maybe I don't have the best idea. Maybe somebody else has got a cool idea or, and this is a hard one for, especially I think guitarists and singers, it's not all about me, mm. right? What decision best serves the song? Yeah. And I mean, this is a great lesson for creatives and, and musicians specifically anyway. And I, I think specifically guitar players, because we like to whittle around and show off and be really cool. But ultimately, especially like if you're in a session or if you're playing live or whatever, my ultimate job is to serve the song and make the artist look good. And the other players that I'm with look good and sound good. And if I do that, my job's done and I get hired again. And of course, you're going to get a moment or two to show off and have your solo and have your moment in the spotlight. But ultimately, if you can make everybody else sound great, yeah. Well, that kind of reminds me of the idea of separating yourself from your work. Sure. You know, so many people, especially when they're starting out doing creative things, have so much trouble taking criticism because they can't separate themselves from the work and they can't, yeah. you know, they think that the criticism is a reflection on themselves and that 
you know, oh, so you're saying I'm no good and and whatever. And that's yeah. not what it's saying at all. Yeah. But but yeah, when you're saying what's good for the song, you have to pull yourself out of it and view the song as a separate thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. No, I mean, your art comes from you, right? You're you ultimately it's your your synthesis, right? Your your input of the world chewed up, mashed up, and and put through your filter and your system and then spit back out via your voice. So it's certainly a part of you, but it's not you. Mm -hmm. It's just a thing that you've created and you have to be able to, you're you're 100% right. You have to be able to let go and put it out in the world and just be willing that it's going to connect with some people and it's going to completely flop with others. And that's okay because what I do isn't for everyone. And the people that love it will love it and love you and love all of the things about it that that connects with them in a special way. And that's a magical thing. Like if I can write a piece of music, I don't care how simple or complex, but if I can write a piece of music and it connects with one person, job done. Right. Um, and to get that one person to connect with it, I think you do have to, can I not like swear, but I'll use a little blue language. So if you're not pissing some people off, <laughs> right, you're never, you're never going to find the people that love you. Yeah. And so it's, it's part of that process. And yeah, you just, you need to just let it go. Right. And like, like Elsa from Disney. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just, just putting it out there and being okay with, with, with some rejection and with some bad criticism and whatever. And we see this especially a lot, I think with, with younger folks on like on all of the social media platforms of like, you know, people, cause there's just going to be trolls everywhere and people like to, I don't know why they like to do it, but they like to just try and knock people down and just like, whatever, man, cool. Good for you. Just put it out, be done with it and move on to the next thing. Yeah. But I'm also thinking that, you know, that experience in Japan and learning to say what what's best for the song probably mm. helps you, you know, when you're essentially writing for someone, you know, who has their idea in their head that you may oh, yeah. or may not exactly grasp, you know, because it's not it's not about you. It's about what's best for the song. Yeah, totally. It's the yeah. same same kind of idea. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. What's, what's best for the song? What's best for the client, right? You know, yeah. and, and I mean, you can always voice your opinion and kind of say, well, I, I wouldn't do this personally. And here's my reasons why, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, you know, right. It's the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. <laughs> and if that's what the customer wants, then that's what you give the customer, right? Because ultimately you're making them happy, not necessarily right. yourself. You're lucky to be able to have that creative outlet, creative expression and the ability to do what you love. Um, for a living, you know, I, I always say like a, a bad day creating music is better than a good day doing just about anything else. Right. Sure. So even if, even if I'm making something that like I'm not particularly passionate about, it's still, I get to make music. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Do you have a way of, of kind of conveying that to the folks that you teach? It, sometimes yes, sometimes no, it really depends on the level of, of, of the player. Um, and the person that I'm working with or, or, or teaching at the time, um, I think most of the folks that I um, work with and play with are, or not play with, excuse me, work with and, and coach or tutor or teach, they're more of the sort of hobbyist set, mm -hmm. right? So they're just looking to play music that they love and have fun with. Um, folks that I have, you know, worked with in terms of like professionals and whatnot, I think in general, the people that succeed in this industry by and large, we kind of all intrinsically know these things anyway, if you know what I mean. Um, so it's, it's something that you can impart or you can teach, or you can, you can tell a complete newbie, let's say somebody that's just coming into the business, right. If they ask, um, but they also have to be open and willing to hear it. And some folks aren't. Um, and sometimes it just takes time to grow and mature so that you can hear that message so that you can understand that thing and you can go, Oh, relax a little. And like, I, I understand. Right. Cause I think now, right. I've had other podcasts I've sat on and they're like, you know, what's the one piece of advice you would give your 20 year, 20 year old self. And I'm like, honestly, you know what? It wouldn't matter. Cause I wouldn't have listened to me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right. You've just got to get out and make mistakes um, as a young person or as a new let's say as a new creative, if you're just getting into an endeavor, I don't care. I, I think it's probably across the board. You have to be willing to make mistakes and suck for a while before you get good. It's just yep. the process. Yep. Yeah. And I think that, that there are certain things 
And I, I know I've told this story before, but when my nephew was born, I thought, oh, it would be really fun because I sing, but I don't play an instrument. And I thought, oh, it'd be really fun to like learn an instrument to play with him as he gets older and whatever. And I briefly thought about learning ukulele because everybody was like, oh, it's really easy, you know? And I right. kind of like went to a ukulele meetup and tried some stuff out. And I left with like a recommendation for what to go buy and all this. And I thought, sure. but realistically, am I going to have the patience to sit down and actually be brand new at this and have no idea what I'm doing? Or am I going to spend a bunch of money on something that's going to sit in the corner because mm -hmm. I'm just not going to, you know, because I'm just going to sit there and say, yeah, I'm not good enough at this to want to keep going because I'm not going to have the patience to be bad at it long enough. Yeah, And totally. I thought, you know what? Singing is pretty good. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. So yeah, no, I'm really, I'm really glad that you that you brought that up because one of the things that I do um, through my YouTube and through my books and for the students that I teach, I actually have an online course. It's actually a smartphone app. It's called the Guitar Dojo. Um, and in that I have a, a course called the Fretboard Infinity Loop System. And the demographic that I generally I I'll teach anybody, I don't care. But by and large, I sort of connect the best with like 35 to 45 year old males that are looking to get back into guitar after time off. You know, they probably played in high school and then they had a family and they had a career and they had a whatever and they've kind of given it up for a while. But now life is kind of changing a little bit and they're like looking to reclaim their youth a little bit, right? <laughs> Instead of going out and buying a Porsche and doing all this stuff, the crazy stuff that some people do, um, you know, they've decided I want to play guitar again. And, uh, and that's who I work with best. So what I try to do with all of the lessons in that series, they all sort of build up on each other. But it's like, starting from where you are and let's keep it simple enough that you can have a win every every time mm -hmm. you open the app and every time you take a lesson 15 minutes and you're you're doing something new and fun and exciting and making good sounds right make music fun again i don't want to sit and lecture you for 12 hours on music theory and retrograde inversions and blah blah like who cares let's make let's make music it's fun it's called playing music not working music right <laughs> we want to play um, and so that's one of the things that I focus on because adults, as you so rightly pointed out, we really don't like not being good at stuff. Yeah. And it's a very rare adult. Like I think I'm one of them where I actually enjoy the process of sucking. I enjoy the process of learning and building up a new skill. Most of us don't. We want to be able to pick the thing up and be good right away. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately it's just, that's not the way the world works. No. So when I'm teaching and I, and I, and I, teach or I try to help other teachers do this too, is if you can give your, your learner or your student or your, your mentee or whatever it is, a quick win, get them something and get them moving immediately. It's going to work so much better than trying to overload them with all the technicalities and whatever. And you know, there's two kinds of learners anyway. There's going to be the people that just want to play and just have fun. And then there's going to be the people that want to learn all the technical and detail and the theory and whatever else. Those people are going to go find that stuff anyway. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if I have a student that wants to learn it, I will 100% teach it to them. I've got the credentials. I've got the knowledge. I will pass it on. But like 9.9 .9 times out of 10, most folks aren't interested in that. So like, why bother focusing on it? Let's have fun. Right. Let's get that win. Let's move forward and keep it simple, stupid, right? The KISS principle. Um, to be able to, to play guitar and solo and, and, and master that fretboard in as few steps as possible. That is actually so similar to what Kaizen Muse Creativity Coaching does because it's like small steps. You break it down into such small steps yeah. that you can't not succeed at them. And so yeah, yeah it's the it's the same idea. Beautiful. And yep. at that point it hadn't dawned on me to apply that principle. And I I don't know if I could have broken down ukulele for myself, not knowing what I was doing that way. But yeah. you know, it's but it's the same idea. And it, yeah, it totally. works. Oh, and that's yeah. And I mean I I think that's the the purpose of finding a mentor or a really good teacher to work with, not for years, mm -hmm. for your first six months maybe, or something like, because yeah. I've got an app, so again, they can buy it, and then you want to take a lesson at 3 a.m., go to town. Um, <laughs> but like to get you to get you on the right foot moving forward, ultimately, like my goal, if I, if I, when I have private students, I ask them like, what is your goal? Is there a song you want to play, a couple songs you want to play? Do you want to write? Do you just want to, like, what is the goal? And then cool, let's get you there in as short a time as possible. If it's four months, it's four months. If it's six months, it's six months. If I'm still working with a student three years later, I've failed as a teacher, mm -hmm. right? Unless there's new goals and new, new right. signposts along the way that we discover that we want to continue working together. But ultimately, my goal is to get them out of my studio and into their own and out 
playing with their friends because that's again playing music having fun <laughs> that's the way it's the way it ought to be yeah. yeah yeah well thank you so much for this conversation it's been fascinating and i've learned a lot and i love what you're doing that's this week's episode thanks so much to my guest nick morrison and to you for listening please leave a review for this episode there's a link in your podcast app and in it, tell us about a time when structure or limitations made being creative easier for you. If you enjoyed our conversation, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Thank you so much. If this episode resonated with you, don't forget to get in touch on any of my social platforms or even via email at nancy at fycuriosity.com and tell me what you loved. And if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now, and you haven't yet signed up for my free email series on six of the most common creative beliefs that are messing you up, please check it out. It'll untangle those myths and help you get rolling again. You can find it at fycuriosity.com. And there's also a link right in your podcast app. See you there and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. Thanks. Thanks.